Thanks for listening to this episode of the Restoration Church Podcast. Today's episode is entitled, There's Only One Thing to Do, and it's part six of our prayer series. We hope you enjoy. Um, Have you ever been in a town and uh, uh, had to drive with someone, and and they know where they're going, but you're driving the car? you ever been in that situation, and they're trying to give you directions? Sometimes when that happens, it doesn't really go like I want it to go. Uh, You're driving down through there, and you're talking, and they're like, oh, I I was supposed to tell you to turn right there. Drive a little bit further. Oh, oh, we missed the second one. I was supposed to tell you to turn right there. It happens over and over and over. And uh, you just want to say to that person, just tell me what to do. Uh, Give them those very specific instructions. Usually, I have to admit, I'm on the other side of that. I am a very single-track-minded individual. So if I'm having a conversation with you or thinking about anything else, I very rarely can also remember to think about where I'm going and drive. That's why it's good for me that, you know, when you drive to work and things like that, um, you just feel like it's automatic, right? You just show up at work one day. You're like, how did I get here? I don't even remember the drive. Does that happen to anybody else? Is that just me? Okay, good. It does happen to other people. Uh, It's not because of my sleep. It's just because of, you know, you just know where you're going so well. But it doesn't work well where you're giving people directions because they just want you to tell them what to do. Um, I was actually making mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving on Thursday. And um, during the middle of it, I had boiled all the potatoes and mixed up all the ingredients. I was trying to follow a recipe. I'd volunteered to make, make the mashed potatoes. So I mixed all my ingredients in there into the bowl. And when I went to put it, pour it into the casserole dish, it had the consistency of skim milk. <laughs> and so at that moment, I was thinking, I wish I just had somebody who would just tell me what to do. Um, I don't know what to do. Just tell me what to do. Um, it, it's been that way sometimes in our marriage, too, like especially early on. I think by now, Kiersey may have just been giving up on me. I don't think I figured it out. But early on, it'd be like, I'd ask that question that probably is crazy to ask, but I'd say, okay, dear, tell me what I can do to be a better husband. And she would say, you know, just be more romantic. Be more, more romantic. And I would go, what does that mean, be more romantic? you got to tell me what to do. Like, I want instructions. I want, at 5 o'clock, I need you to wash the car. At 5.55, I need you to vacuum the car. At 6.15, I need you to take a shower and trim your beard. Trim it again. Trim it again. Clean up the hairs after you trimmed it. (laughs) Go get flowers, but don't get 12 because that's weird. Don't get one because that's weird. Get three. Don't get red ones. Get pink ones. Maybe not even pink ones. Get coral ones because I like coral better. I want you to tell me what to do if I'm going to be romantic. Our whole world kind of is that way a little bit too, right? I mean, we, we function in this way. We go to mechanics so they can tell us what to do with our car. Um, we, we go to get our hair cut uh, so people can tell us what to do with our hair. That's what I always hope. hope. I don't like it when they ask me, like, what do you want done? I'm like, I don't know what I want done. You tell me what to do. We go to financial advisors so they can tell us what to do with our finances. Our world is built this way. Maybe even we find ourselves in very serious situations where we just want somebody to tell us what to do. Um, have you ever been in that position in life where maybe it's Tuesday? Hopefully you haven't, but some of us, some of us have. It's Tuesday. Um, you can't, your, your car's on empty. Your checking account is in red. All your credit cards are maxed out. Your pantry has a piece of bread in it. Your refrigerator has like one hot dog and a half a piece of bologna. <laughs> and you're like, what is going on here? How am I going to make it? I don't even think I'm going to make it to work. What do I do? Somebody just tell me what to do. I had a friend uh, not, not too long ago was talking to me and sharing with me something he was going through. His wife had met another man online, and uh, they had begun a relationship. And he still loved his wife. He wanted to save the marriage, but his wife didn't want to have anything to do with him. His heart was broken. He was alone. 
He sat down with me and with tears rolling down his cheeks, he said, Lance, just tell me what to do. Sometimes we're in those moments, right? Sometimes life, life gets tough, life gets hard, we get confused, we don't know which way's up, and we just wish somebody would tell us what to do. If we're a follower of Christ, maybe that sounds even a little different. Maybe we would replace somebody with God. I just wish God would tell me what to do. Or oftentimes we hear that question asked this way, God, what's your will? We're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 7 together today that's going to help us begin to answer this question. By no means are we going to say everything there is to say about, uh, about knowing God's will or getting the question answered, what is it I'm supposed to do? But I do want us to start poking around that a little bit. We're going to find Jesus has a lot to say about it as He wraps up this, this speech we've been reading about. This speech, the most famous speech, the most quoted speech in all of history, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to begin to summarize and bring it to conclusion. And we're going to bring to summarize and bring it to conclusion together as well today. Uh, and as we study, I just, want, I just want us to have this mindset today. As we look and see what Jesus says to help us answer these questions. We're just reading the Bible together. Have you ever been in your family? I hope you have. If you haven't, I would challenge you to get in this space. Even as I say that, I'm like, man, my family needs to be in this space more often. Uh, maybe it's with friends. You're just sitting around reading the Bible together. You're reflecting on what you're reading, and you're asking each other questions, and uh, you're making comments. I just want us to be in that space today, just reading the Bible together today. We may flip to a few other passages a little bit more than normal, but just like we were reading the Bible together today, I, I just get to go first. That's all it is. And then, as you guys know, we like to break, give everybody a few minutes to settle in or leave if they need to, and then come back together to have some discussion. Um, that's what we like to do because we just want to read and study and think and meditate on Scripture today. So we believe God has great things to tell us, the most important things to tell us about life. So in Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus wrap, begins to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 15. Uh, it may be a few verses down from what you have in the Sermon Notes app if uh, you begin using that today. But this is the beginning of a new section. We're going to touch a little bit on the verses earlier in a minute, but for now we're going to start in verse 15. This is the beginning of a new section for Jesus. Remember we, we showed you how that this is three points in a poem, that Jesus was like straight up uh, Baptist preacher in this case, of uh, three points in a poem. Well, this is the third point, and it starts in verse 15. Uh, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but in inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can produce good, can't produce bad. I'm sorry, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. I think Jesus was into tongue twisters on that one. Verse 19: Every tree that uh, doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Uh, we're going to get into it in a second, but these, this just pops in my head a couple questions. One is: Is what is the fruit? And what is this healthy tree that he's talking about? What does it mean to be healthy? You probably know the answer to that one. You, you guys have been paying attention for a few weeks. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, what, what does he mean by enter the kingdom of heaven? Let's, let's pop, stop there and just reflect for a second. Make sure we understand that really well. Well, I, I, I think most of us have a tendency to think that means something like go to heaven. Uh, enter the kingdom of heaven means go to heaven. Enter the kingdom of God means, means you know, what happens when we die. So we would look at this passage and try to answer questions like, what, is, what does this mean about making sure I'm good when I die? But I don't think context would, would teach us that that's what Jesus is referring to. Remember how Jesus has been talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven already throughout the book of Matthew. 
Even in the, the very beginning of the sermon, he starts out by talking to what we call the Beatitudes, the blessed people, or literally you call them the happy people. The happy people are, are teaching us about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. For one, it means to be in the joy and the happiness provided to us in the presence of Jesus Christ. He goes on to describe other things of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And then later after this passage of Scripture, a few verses, very important. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, matter of fact, you can turn there if you want to. Uh, you can listen to me read it um, if you trust me not to read it wrong. Verse 28 of chapter 12, it says... If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God. So Jesus has just been challenged here. He's been challenged to, uh, about His authority. Where is His authority to, to cast out demons? Where does His authority come from? Where does His power come from? And the, those, of him, those enemies against Him are accusing them, Him of getting His authority and His power to cast out demons from somebody, got, uh, somebody named Beelzebub. We won't get into who that is right now. We can dig into that later if you want to. But by Beelzebub, Jesus says, all right, if that's where my authority and my power to do great things in life comes from, then answer this question for me. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God instead, then the kingdom of God has come to you. It's here. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is not some place we go to after we die. The kingdom of God is a reality that we exist in here on earth, or we have the opportunity to exist in here on earth. And in, in Matthew chapter 7, as Jesus is closing out the Sermon on the Mount, He's going to help us return to this idea in the same way He started the idea of what does it mean to live in the authority and the power of Jesus. We talked about how desirable that would be early on in this series, right? That to, to our lives to be characterized by Jesus accomplishing whatever He wanted, whenever He wanted it. Our lives to be reflective of the changing, transformational power of the one at the top. Jesus, God. Jesus is saying that the person who experiences that type of, that type of power, that type of authority... Um, that's who he's speaking to. That's who he's helping us understand um, what characterizes that kind of person in this passage of Scripture. So again in verse 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says these words or, or makes a confession or a profession that Jesus is Lord will have this type of experience of God's power and God's authority in their life being reflected effectively. But who does that? But who gets that experience? But only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me go, okay, what's he talking about the will of my Father in heaven? Is he just anything? So I've got to do everything God says. All right, now, by the way, if that's the answer to that question, sorry about you. That's what we say sometimes at work. Sorry about you. Sorry about me, right? Because none of us will do the will of God if the will of God in this passage of Scripture means doing everything God wants us to do. So I'm hoping that's not what he means. Maybe he does. I'll submit to Scripture if that's what he means. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and then they're going to give a list. Their, their spiritual resume is what they're about to give us. They're about to, we're about to go into the LinkedIn profile of these hypocrites and of these scribes and these Pharisees and, and church members and deacons and pastors and church leaders and church directors. We're going into their spiritual resume for a minute. Because their answer to why don't we get to experience the authority and power in Jesus in our life is, wait a minute, we call you Lord, we're surrendered to you, we're committed to you, you're our Lord. And if you didn't know it, Jesus, let's tell you about some of the cool things we've done. So let's get into the resume. Verse 22, on that day many will say to me, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we proclaim truth or predict the future in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious folks, those of them probably a lot like us start to claim that they should get, they deserve 
the authority and power of Jesus in their life, the transformation of Jesus in their life because of their spiritual resume. They have an order problem, not an outcome problem. The outcome's good, right? Do great things for Jesus. I mean, that's what their resume was. Really cool things, spiritual things, things that seemed like they couldn't be done without the power of God. The outcome's good. It's the order that's wrong. They think they get to experience the kingdom of God, the rule of Jesus in their life, because of the good things they're doing, their religious performance. The reality is, is they get to experience, we get to experience those things because we are intimate with God. We are in the presence of God. We are in the power of God. Make sense? It's not an outcome problem. It's an order problem. We'll keep reading. Verse 23. Then I will announce to them. Here's the problem. Here's the answer to that question that we, got, we had raised in our head earlier. What does it mean to do the will of God? We probably already knew that because we've been studying this passage for, for a long time. And we've studied it very clearly and very carefully. And we know what the will of God is. It says, then I will announce to them, I never, what's the next word? Knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Jesus, when he, when he hears their spiritual resume... He's talking, to, he's talking to disciples here. Remember that. He's talking to followers of Christ. He's talking to people who are drawing near to Him. That's the context. And in that moment, He says to them, Yeah, you've given me your spiritual resume. You're talking about all the great things you've done, but here's the problem. We don't know each other. I don't know you. Jesus is characterized, by the way, what we said as intimacy with God or um, connection with the Father. We might even say it, conversations with God. He has characterized this throughout the Sermon on the Mount as how not we know God, but how God knows us. Look at, just real quickly, kind of follow with me through chapter 6 for a second. Um, if you can flip over there, we're going to read, read three different verses. Verse number 8 says this. It says, don't be like them because your Father knows the needs you have before you ask Him. God knows. Verse 32 for the idolaters eagerly seek, all, eagerly seek all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows. Then in chapter 7, verse 11, If you then, who are evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven know to give good gifts to those who ask Him? God knows. This very important thread of text or scripture or verses throughout chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 is how Jesus characterizes what it means to have intimacy with God. Conversation with God. Connectedness to the Father. So what is Jesus saying? Let's back up now. We've, we've went through the nitty gritty. What is Jesus saying? Let's back up and see it. He's saying that God's will is one thing. Intimacy with God. Closeness to Jesus. Conversations with the Spirit. That's what God's will is. Jesus helped us understand a pretty radical thing that is taught over and over and over and over in Scripture. And that is, if we get the one thing that's the most important thing right, everything else will take care of itself. It's what's taught in John chapter 15 when Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. If you're intimate with me, if you get the one thing right, everything else will take care of itself. Psalm 27, 4. This one thing have I desired. How many things? One thing have I desired. To dwell in the presence of God, to inquire at His throne, to seek His face. Which are all ways to say, get close to God, get to know who He is. Who are you, Father? Intimacy. My wife likes to define intimacy as, into me you see. And as humans, we get that, right? If we're intimate... If there's intimacy between us, you get to see who I am. You get to see the real Lance. 
inside and out, the good days and the bad days, the pretty and the ugly. God is saying, I invite you into that type of relationship with me. God's saying into me, you see. Psalm 27, 4 teaches it. The Bible teaches it several other places. We've seen it in Mary and Martha. We remember, I like to quote that one a lot. Jesus looks at Mary, the one who's not doing a lot for the, key, for the religious, in the religious realm and not a very good religious performer. She's just sitting there listening to Jesus talk. And what does Jesus tell her? He says, Mary, you've chosen the only thing that matters. There's one thing that's needed to do, and you've chosen to do that one thing. Get to know Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Be in conversation, intimate conversation with Jesus. You will, seek, you, will, you will find me when you seek for me with your whole heart, God says in Jeremiah. Not part of your heart, but your whole heart. When this becomes the single desire, the single pursuit, as the song we sang earlier, your one desire is to get to know God and to get to know His heart and to see into who He is, everything else in your life will bear fruit out of that in righteousness and godliness, as we're going to see a little bit more about in this passage. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man or a wise man who built his house on a rock. Something that interesting that Jesus does here, uh, Matthew as the, the biblical author, um, he says, everyone who hears these words, this is, this is connected to doing the will of God. And acts on them, does them, it's the same exact word for does that we see earlier, which is actually a pretty significant uh, word here in the text. He will be like will be a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we see, as we keep moving through this text, a few characterizations of what it will be like when we start to get close to God. The first thing we see is that the person's life who hears and stays close to God, who's intimate with the Father, his life will be characterized by wisdom. Jesus goes on to explain what that wisdom looks like and what that wisdom is. The rain fell, verse 25, the rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain and the rivers rolled, the winds blew, and pounded the house. Has this ever felt like it described your life? And it collapsed. And its collapse was great. I think it's interesting because when we talk about people hearing God, Sometimes we think that sounds a little nuts, right? If, if, if you don't believe me, wait until one of the presidential candidates says something about hearing from God and watch how the, how the rest of the world reacts. They're going to go nuts, aren't they? Okay, he just said something about hearing voices from the Lord. Oh, my goodness. Because we think of it as some mystical thing, something, something beyond, something that's uh, unexplainable, almost like seeing ghosts or, or, or hearing voices uh, as it may be. But Jesus says, ironically to me, that when you listen to God's Spirit, when you listen to God's voice, when there's intimacy with God, conversational intimacy, your life will be characterized by wisdom. But what is wisdom? Look over in Proverbs chapter 2. I think it's a really great, quick way for us to understand what wisdom is. First of all, we're going to look in verse, verse 6. So let's start in verse 5. Uh, the, the author of Proverbs has been talking to us a little bit about how important wisdom is. 
And then verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So before we move too far into this, we understand that, uh, and by the way, knowledge and wisdom can be interchanged in the book of Proverbs. They mean the same thing in the book of Proverbs. In our world today, sometimes they mean something a little bit differently. But in the book of Proverbs, they mean the same thing. And what we find is, as the author of Proverbs, a book all about wisdom, as he gets us understanding at the very beginning what Proverbs is all about, what wisdom is all about, he says it's, it's knowing who God is. Knowing the heart and character and qualities and perfections of God is the foundation for all wisdom. So we got that in our heads. Let's keep reading verse number 6. For the Lord gives wisdom. So where does it come from? It comes from the Lord. Makes sense. But, but how? From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. What I think this, what I think this means is, is that as we listen to the Lord speak to us in our hearts... As we read Scripture and meditate on Scripture, and, the, and the, Lord, the Lord speaks to us through meditating on Scripture, as we pray and cry out to God, and the Spirit of God speaks to us, even in our own cries and even in our own deep yearnings, as Romans chapter 8 teaches us that He does, we will discover that as we listen to the Holy Spirit, as we have conversations with God, wisdom will come out of that. That's verse number 6. And then maybe a little bit more specific. I love how He just keeps going. We're going to skip to verse 9 because He just really gets into it to me. Verse number 9. Then you will understand righteousness, justice, integrity, every good path or every good choice. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is being able to make good choices. It's being able to take all the information. That's what we typically call knowledge. I have a lot of data. I have a lot of information and I understand it. I can compute it. And apply it to choices. Is this the right way or this the wrong way? It's in a spiritual sense. It's taking the theology of the Bible. And what we know to be true about, about God's word and about God's character and about God. And being able to apply the direction of scripture to different areas of life. When scripture may not speak specifically to it. That's what wisdom is. And the Bible is saying that the Holy Spirit. When we listen to the Holy Spirit we will be able to do that. What I find is that in those days where I find myself most impacted by the presence of God, Rick was sharing just uh, last week about there are days where we have a sense of we're close to God and God's presence and God's power on us is, is practically tangible. And on those days for me, I can't say this every day, it should be, but I can't say this every day for me. Um, on those days, I find that God's Spirit is speaking to me all the time. Hey, Lance, don't say that. Hey, Lance, why don't you go over here and do this? Hey, Lance, your tone, your tone there, buddy. Make your tone a little bit kinder. I find that the Lord is not just some, some being that's ethereal and out there and unconnected and only interested in, in having conversations with me about, about mystical things of eschatology and theology and blah, blah, blah. I find that the Holy Spirit of God is right there in my life with me as a friend, guiding me and directing me and saying, go here, don't go there, do this, don't do this, say this, don't say this. And I find that when I do that, my life is characterized by choosing every good path. When our lives, when we're hearing in God's Spirit, we're in conversation with God's Spirit, our lives will be characterized by wisdom. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. The next thing we see in this passage, we kind of work our way back up. Um, our lives will be characterized, may not be characterized by religious performance. We've already said this a little bit. But, but I do think it's important to just pop in here just again, just a second. This is the spiritual resume, right, that we see uh, in verse 25, I believe it is. Is that right? Nope. Verse 22. We see the spiritual resume. Do you think if somebody came up here and gave a testimony about casting out demons, 
and predicting the future. Hey, let me tell you about this time, and I've got it in, in newsprint. You can read my, my blog, and I, re, I predicted the, the attacks on 9-11, or I predicted the, the start mar stock market crash, or I predicted the outcome of the Super Bowl, or I predicted this, or I predicted that. Or maybe, maybe they come up here and told stories about casting out demons. They came up here and they're, they're, you know, they're like me and they're very you know, energetic, casting out demons or, or healing or something like that. Do you think we would have a tendency to think they're more spiritual than we are? I think we would. Jesus, though, challenges that and says that it's the regular, daily, living in conversation with the Holy Spirit that lives itself out in wise choices that genuinely, most truly characterize having conversations and listening to the Holy Spirit. I'll also say this. This passage reminds me of just how important it is for us to, just to hear this sometimes. Is that we have a tendency to believe that our acceptance with God, even as believers, is built on what we do. We, we, we look at God sometimes like He's inside this walled fortress and He's just hoping we don't get in. And inside of that walled fortress is connection with God. Acceptance with God, right standing with God. And we lay up against that wall all of our good stuff. We feel like if we just lay enough good stuff up against that wall, the wall will collapse and we'll finally overcome God's unwillingness and we can be in God's presence. God is saying that, he, that, that His economy does not work that way. That His gates are open and without our righteousness and without our deeds and without any good, good, luck, good actions and good service, without a spiritual resume that weighs up, we have free, gracious acceptance with God. I really believe that this passage actually teaches the opposite of the way I hear most preachers preaching it. Most preachers preach it to help people who don't live good lives, feel bad about themselves, get really convicted, and then get saved for the 17th time. <laughs> Which is the opposite of what this passage is teaching. This passage is challenging people like you and me who live very good lives. Let's just be honest. For the most part, probably in here, we're not killing folks. Uh, hopefully nobody is doing, you know, in an affair. You know, we, we're probably good, moral, upstanding people in this room. This passage is against us. Because we are in a much more dangerous place than anyone else to think that our acceptance with God is based on our works, on, our, on the depth and the quality of our commitment to God or our surrender to God instead of His commitment and His promise to us. And when we are in the position thinking that it's our surrender, our works, our commitment, our promise, our repentance that makes us acceptable to God. I'm sorry I'm getting excited about this. This is so important. Hell will be much more full with people who are church members who think they're going to get out of hell because of their good works. Heaven will be filled with dirty, rotten sinners like me who know that their only hope is Jesus. Their only hope is grace. And not just to get into heaven, but to be in God's presence. Let's keep reading. Your life will not be characterized by, may not be characterized by religious performance. Uh, I want to skip up a little bit. Look at verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road. Difficult probably just is another, uh, another adjective for narrow. So uh, literary license, I guess you would say here, or poetic speaking. Jesus says uh, narrow in two different ways in verse 14. In other words, it's not talking about how difficult it is. It's talking about how few people 
choose to go through it in verse 14. How narrow is the gate? How narrow the road that leads to life and few who find it. What is the road that leads to life? According to the Sermon on the Mount, what's the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount? Intimacy. Right? That's the road that leads to life. And very few people get on that road. There are a lot of roads, a lot of roads that we take to get to God. Religious performance. Church attendance. Church leadership. Morality. Service. God says there's only one road. Intimacy. But know that if you're intimate with God, your life may not characterize, be characterized by the majority opinion. You may be oftentimes alone. And maybe just a few of us. I think it's funny how often we test the success of a movement or the spiritual acceptedness. Is that, that's not good English, is it? I don't know. Acceptance. Acceptance. Thank you, Dan. Uh, thank you, Rick. Um, Except the spiritual acceptance movement is by how many people are in it. Right? If there's a lot of people in it, it must be a God thing. If there's not very many people in it, yes, I don't know, let's stay away from those guys. They're weird. Jesus says we should turn our, our test on its head. And we should weigh things not by the crowds that are drawn sometimes, but by the few who follow. One other characterization here, just a couple more. Verse 15. We read it earlier, but we, we asked a couple of questions. I won't read it again, but we, we see a passage of Scripture that talks about um, there are false prophets out there and they have, they have bad fruit. And that, we asked the question, well, what is the fruit? If you kept your finger in Matthew chapter 12, which I'm sure you didn't because I didn't suggest that you do, but turn back over there real quick if you don't mind. I've always wondered what the fruit is here. And, and there, it could be a lot of things, right? I mean, the fruit could be, it could be the fruit of the Spirit, right? Do they have love? Do they have joy? Do they have peace? Do they have patience? That could maybe be the fruit of the Spirit. It could be general works, like are they doing good things? You'll know them by their works. You'll know them by their the kind of obedient lives they live. Are they, are they sinning a lot or are they not sinning a lot? Are they doing a lot of righteous stuff or are they not doing a lot of righteous stuff? Maybe that's what fruit could mean. Um, it could even mean logically multiplication. You'll know them by, by their disciples even. Like uh, your, your fruit is your reproduction, right? That's a tree's reproduction. A big tree has little fruits. Those little fruits are little, little pieces of that tree, right? That makes sense? So it could, be meaning, it could mean that. Um, I've wondered all of those things, but actually chapter 12 tells us what it means. Exactly, specifically what the fruit means in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in verse 33, a parallel passage, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. What is the fruit, though? Verse 34, you brood of snakes. Jesus was so gentle. How can you speak good things when you're evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good man produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil man produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. What is Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us what the fruit means. Now remember who he said beware of. Beware of the false prophets. What do prophets do? They speak. Jesus is saying, what he's teaching us is, is that the fruit of the false prophet in this text is their message, is their words, is the content of their theology and their thinking. And Jesus is telling us to beware of false prophets. Watch out for their false fruit, their wrong speaking. And where does the wrong speaking come from? It comes from the overflow of their heart. 
A person who is intimate with God will be characterized by transformed heart. Not just transformed actions. A transformed heart. God will change what we want, what you desire, what's inside of you. God will change you. That's the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel isn't behavior change. It's deep inside desire change that bears fruit in behavior. And then the last one. I know we're going all over the place, but this is the last one, I promise. We're all going to go back up into verse number 12 of chapter 7. So just make sure we're all on the same page. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 12. Just thought it was a really good passage for us to end on as we look at this. Uh, look at this text. Because it is a bit of a um, peak moment for the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in verse number 12 of chapter 7, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or as my Bible says at verse number 12, Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus says, if you want to take the law and the prophets, He does this a few times in a few different ways, right? Those of you who read the Bible a lot were like, hey, didn't He do that before? Didn't He do that again? Yes, He does this a few times in a few different ways. But in this passage, He says, if you want to get the law and the prophets down to one idea, one simple summary, treat others the way you want to be treated. When we're into intimacy, when we're intimate with God, our lives will be characterized by love. When your friends think of you, do they think of what you're against? Or do they think of what you're for? How often are we as believers most known, build our most, most famous reputations on what we're against? You know, in the 1800s, it was cards and theater and dance. In the 1900s, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're against them. Stop them. 2015, are we most known for being against things? You fill in your list. There's things that are wrong, right? There are things that we should be against. But are we characterized by what we're against? Or are we characterized by people that we're for? Characterized by love and kindness and graciousness and service. It just reminds me of what Will taught us early on in the sermon. Are we characterized by loving, not just up to the requirement in the first mile, but a second mile love going above and beyond? Jesus wraps up this sermon by challenging us to be the kind of people who live in continual, intimate conversation with God. And He says that when we do, our lives will be characterized by wisdom, by a life and heart that's transformed, and by love. What would it be like in this, in your marriage, if you were more characterized by love than what you potentially could be characterized by now? What would it be like at your work if you were most characterized, most characterized by love? I don't know a lot about Lance. I don't know what he believes a lot. It's kind of weird sometimes. I don't know what he knows. I don't know what he thinks about gay marriage. I don't know what he thinks about abortion. I don't know what he thinks about, about um, capital punishment. But I know he loves me. Are you characterized by love? What if this church in this city, when people said the name Restoration Church, what if, what if they said that church, I don't know a lot about them, but I know they love us. Maybe even better. What if, they, what if they didn't hear our name very much when they heard our name and they said something about that church helps me know that God is real and God loves me. That's what happens.
when we decide to live in intimacy with God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to hear more messages in this series or check out other messages from the church, please visit us at www.restoration.us or you can follow us on Facebook at RestorationDCH.